Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it is, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Almighty Father, as we come now to your word, we ask for your Holy Spirit uh, to that speak to our minds and to our hearts. Um, Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. Uh, and so uh, you know what we need. You know what we need to hear. You know what we need to know. You know what lies we're believing that we need to not believe anymore. Um, and so we ask you to uh, um, show us the things, show us the truths, show us aspects of who you are, that we would want to know if we knew that they existed, if we knew uh, where our blindnesses were, then we would we would ask for those blindnesses to be removed. But oftentimes we don't know where those blindnesses are. So we need you to answer the prayers that we would pray if we were wiser. Um, so will you open our hearts to your word and our minds and show us Jesus. Pray this in his name, amen, amen. All right, team. Hey, uh, please turn back to the Ephesians reading. That's on page nine. We're continuing our series in Ephesians. We're also continuing our series in Advent. And let me just remind you a little bit of where we've been over the last few weeks in this season of Advent. So if you'll remember two weeks ago, because I know we all remember all the sermons that have come before, right? Okay. Two weeks ago, we said that Jesus came, Jesus advented, in order to speak peace, to bring peace into our most intractable human hostilities. And then last week, we saw that Jesus came, he advented in order to create a community that is saturated with that peace and with that reconciliation. He came to, he advented to establish the church. 
Now, this week, we're going to continue uh, by looking at this passage, and here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that Jesus advented, he came in order to display God's wisdom. Now, those may sound like really different things, but they're not. They're all part of one single reality. So Jesus came, he advented into the world, targeting the hostilities that are most intractable within human life and human society. And as Jesus brings peace into those hostilities, he's at the very same time creating a community, we call it the church, that is defined or saturated with that peace that only Jesus can give. It's a peace that we can't anticipate, we kind of desire it, but it seems to be something that is beyond even our desires. Nevertheless, Jesus advents, he reveals himself, he breaks into this world, and he establishes this community of peace. That's what we talked about last week. But then, as Jesus establishes this community, this is part of what we're going to look at today, as Jesus establishes this community, saturated by reconciliation and peace, through that community, the church, Jesus is displaying the wisdom of God that we wouldn't be able to see otherwise. Now, I know that that seems kind of obscure, but here's where I take it from. Take a look at verse 10 in our reading on page nine. It says this, the apostle Paul says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, that's a big verse that doesn't get a lot of play, but I think it should get a lot more play than it does. It's, he's, he's claiming something that's, that's really quite audacious. Paul, the writer of this letter, is claiming that God displays his wisdom, which couldn't be known otherwise. He displays his wisdom through this church that Jesus advented into this world to establish. Now, again, I know that that's kind of obscure, so we're going to try to figure it out. And I want to show you three things. Three things about God's wisdom. First, God's wisdom is not obvious, so it must be revealed. Secondly, God's wisdom is about reconciliation, and therefore it must be displayed in community. And thirdly, God's wisdom subverts power, and so it must be displayed in suffering. Let me show you. First, God's wisdom is not obvious, so it must be revealed. Okay, the Apostle Paul uh, is writing this letter to a group of churches around uh, Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, and these churches were uh, majority Gentile. They weren't majority Jewish. And in this reading, he's describing his own ministry to them. So in order to grasp what this reading means, we need to think about uh, Paul and his backstory. So as the Apostle Paul is writing this, we've said this before, he's been incarcerated by the Roman Empire for many years. Uh, And he's specifically in the city of Rome awaiting trial. Now, let's back up the tape, go back in Paul's timeline about 25 years. 25 or so years before this, Paul was not yet a Christian. He's young and he's in Jerusalem and everything is just going great for Paul. Paul, his career is on a steep ascent. So Paul, young Paul in Jerusalem, he's the guy you want to be. Um, Or maybe better, he's, he's the guy that everybody wants their kids to grow up and become. So the young Paul, he, he started off really well. He, he was born a Roman citizen, which is great because it gives him political credibility throughout the Mediterranean world. But young Paul is also 
um, a super high status within his Jewish community, within the Israelite community of the day. And part of the reason he's really high status is that he's got a great education. He studied with a guy called Gamaliel. You can read about Gamaliel a little bit in uh, the book of Acts, but you can read a lot about him in the Talmud. Um, so he studied with just the best scholar of his day. And then young Paul landed a great job at head office in Jerusalem. So basically young Paul, he's just killing it in life. He's just doing great. If anybody, this is important, if anybody had a shot at really being wise, really being somebody who gets it, it's Paul. He's an expert in Jewish wisdom. He's got access to uh, Roman and Greek wisdom. He's got access to it all. He's set up brilliantly to be super wise, to really get the world. But here's the problem. In one way, young Paul did everything right. But in a deeper way, young Paul got everything wrong. Here's what I mean. Young Paul defaulted to something that I'm gonna call intuitive wisdom. And it went something a little bit like this. Young Paul looked around the world. He studied hard, he worked hard, he, uh, he was sincere, and he intuited that the best way to navigate life and really get ahead is to pursue things like power and protection and self-promotion. And Paul was really, really good at it. So he was good at accumulating power. That's part of the reason he had such a great, or that's part of why he had, he pursued education. It, it gave him resources and power. But also he used that power in a kind of protective sort of way. And what I mean by that is if you look at early Paul, young Paul, he used his influence and his power and his education and his status and his position in order to protect uh, his tribe and his party within his nation. He was a Pharisee and he protected the interests of his party, power, protection, but then also there was self-promotion. Paul was heading for greatness. All the parents in Jerusalem, they looked at Paul, they pointed out Paul to their kids and they said, hey, you watch that young guy, Paul, cause he's gonna go far and you should follow his path because you'll, you know, it'll be great. However, despite all Paul's sincerity and all his best efforts, Paul was unwittingly a pawn of what he later called in our reading, the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Do you see that phrase in verse 10? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What, what's he talking about there? Well, we find out later in the book of Ephesians that the rulers and authorities that Paul's talking about, they're not political leaders, although political leaders are quite often influenced by them. When Paul talks about the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, he means spiritual forces of evil. He means the devil and demons. Now, I know that's gonna raise some objections, right? And I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about the devil or you think about demons. It might be something quite trite. It might seem utterly legendary, but consider this. The Apostle Paul, who's writing this book and mentions the rulers and authorities, the Apostle Paul knew quite a lot about evil and he knew it from personal experience. He had street cred when it came to evil, at least on two fronts. He had been the victim of evil because when he's writing, older Paul, when he's writing Ephesians, he himself is a victim of uh, political injustice from the Romans and religious corruption from uh, his own community back in Jerusalem. He's a, he's a victim of evil, but also young Paul was a 
perpetrator of evil. Young Paul had ended up perpetrating violence and hatred by personally uh, persecuting and jailing early Christians. My point is the Apostle Paul, particularly older Apostle Paul, has street cred when he's talking about evil because he can look back on his own life and he can look back on his own experience and he can see that underneath the religious corruption of his day and underneath the political injustice of his day and underneath his own personal experience of cruelty, he can see that there's a realm of evil that's more powerful than any of us and that quite, can quite easily, maybe even inevitably, control us. And in Paul's life, early Paul's life, despite doing all that he knew to live wisely, he inadvertently ended up being a pawn of what he later calls the rulers and authorities. And he ended up living for power and protection and self-promotion. And the whole time, he honestly thought that he was doing well, even when he ended up persecuting and violently being cruel to early Christians and being complicit in their murder. Now, why am I talking about Paul's backstory here? Here's why. I want you to see that God's wisdom is not obvious. I want you to see that we will never just stumble into God's wisdom. We can look at this world, we can learn all we can, we can study hard, we can try to make really good decisions, and yet we may do a lot of good things, but very often we'll still end up being pawns of evil without even realizing it, just like Paul ended up. One of the things that this means is it means that sincerity by itself isn't enough. Sincerity by itself won't cut it. What we need, and this is where Advent comes in, what we need is we need God's wisdom to break in on us. We need God's wisdom to Advent, to come, to arrive into our world. And that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. What happened was Jesus Advented, broke into Paul's life. Now, I'm not going to tell the whole story here, but the short version is uh, Paul quite literally got in front of well, Jesus, rather, got in front of Paul when he was on his way to Damascus to persecute some Christians. Jesus got in Paul's way and interrupted or advented into Paul's life. And when Paul came face to face with Jesus, this is young Paul, Paul realized, on the one hand, that he was blind in ways that he had never dreamed that his intuitive wisdom had not led him well. His intuitive wisdom had led him to be complicit in terrible evil things, the rulers and the authorities. But when he met Jesus, he also realized that Jesus, Jesus was the epicenter of real wisdom, the real wisdom of God. And that meeting Jesus radically changed Paul's life and it changed the way Paul sought wisdom. After Paul met Jesus, he spent the rest of his life receiving revelation from Jesus and depending on Jesus's wisdom moment by moment and breath by breath throughout the rest of his life. And that was a huge change because previously, before meeting Jesus, Paul had relied on his own intuition and it had led him badly. Now, all of this helps explain the first few verses of our reading. Take a look at it. Verse three, Paul says, that a mystery has been made known to him by revelation. Now, slow down with me. This is important. 
Mystery in the Bible uh, doesn't mean something we don't really understand. Mystery in the Bible is an insight that was previously hidden or secret, but has now been made clear. And that's what Jesus does in Advent. When Jesus advented into this world, he took God's wisdom, which would have been previously hidden or at least obscured, and he makes it clear to the world. And in Paul's life, he made it clear specifically to Paul. Now, Paul had a unique role as an apostle. He could see Jesus's truth and the wisdom of God that Jesus displayed. Paul, with the apostles, could see that with pristine clarity. But this is part of the reason he wrote the book of Ephesians and the rest of Paul's letters. If you look at verse four, he wrote this book and the rest of his letters so that God's wisdom, which had been previously hidden, but now made clear by Jesus, could become clear to everybody who reads this. Verse four, Paul says, when you read this, Ephesians, you're going to be able to perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. God's wisdom is not obvious. It has to be revealed through the advent of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul saw God's wisdom displayed in Jesus, and then he wrote his letters in order for that wisdom to be passed on through the generations right down to us today. And Emmanuel, this is why we take the Bible so terribly seriously. Because the Bible is a library of books that God uses to unveil his mysteries and keep them unveiled so that his wisdom can be public and can come to us. And one of the impl implications of that is this. Some of the most important bits of the Bible are the bits that challenge our intuitions. Because when our intuitions are challenged by the scripture, that's when our blinders come off and we're able to see what we previously couldn't see. Emmanuel, when you read the Bible, pay special attention, not so much to the things that immediately you immediately agree with. Pay special attention to the bits that challenge you the most, because that's where the treasure is. Friends, God's wisdom is not obvious. It must be revealed. It's revealed first in Christ, then to the apostles, and through the apostles' writings to us. Secondly, God's wisdom is about reconciliation, and therefore it must be displayed in community. Okay, when the Apostle Paul met Jesus, young Paul, one of the things that totally offended Paul's intuition, but ended up being a treasure to Paul, is verse 6. Take a look at it. This mystery, Paul says, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, this picks up a key thing that we've been talking about the last few weeks. Like I said, verse 6 went totally against the intuitive tribalism of Paul's day. So, so Paul was Jewish. He was an Israelite. At the same time, Paul was a Roman citizen. Now, as an Israelite, uh, the intuitive wisdom of his day was a kind of tribal protectionism. So it went a little bit like this. Well, we're, we're Jewish, we're Israelites, we're not in political power because we're in the middle of the Roman Empire, but we can use what little power that we do have to protect ourselves against uh, Gentile cultural opponents. And there was a huge focus uh, for the Israelite community and, and particularly the group that Paul was a part of. 
that was part of the intuitive wisdom of his day. But on the other hand, you have the Roman, the Roman Empire and the Roman intuitive approach to wisdom. And the Roman intuition was different. They were in power. They held all the power. And so they tried to enforce peace in the world through violent coercion. They called it the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. It wasn't always pretty. Lots of people died, but at least it brought order. Now, what I want you to see is that both of those approaches, intuitive approaches to wisdom, rely on power and protection and self-promotion. Both of them are rooted in the wisdom of the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, but not God's wisdom. On the other hand, when Paul met Jesus, Jesus turned that whole approach upside down because God's wisdom revealed in Jesus Christ, remember this from last week, it's all about reconciliation. First, God reconciles his enemies to himself so that God's former enemies can become his children. And then God looks at his former enemies who are now his children and says, children, you're no longer enemies of each other. You are now one family together. There's two reconciliations, reconciliation with God, reconciliation with each other, forming a new community saturated with a peace that only Jesus can give. Now, because God's wisdom is all about that reconciliation, reconciliation with God, reconciliation with each other, because God's wisdom is all about that reconciliation, the best way to see that wisdom in action is in a community, in a church, in a group of former opponents who have now become, former opponents who have now become family. And now slow down with me, because that community, if it's going to display God's wisdom well, it's going to need to be multi-ethnic, transnational, and anti-tribal. Let me give you an illustration of this. Do you know the blessings that we use at the end of our service? Um, you remember, uh, if, you've, if you're with us regularly, all of our problems, we, what do we do? We send to the cross of Christ. All our difficulties, we send to the cross of Christ. All the devil's works, we send to the cross of Christ. Do you know where that started? Do you know where that came from? It's a Kenyan liturgy, but do you know what its origin is? It started off as a curse. So what happened is in an area of Kenya, there was a tribe that used to curse their enemies by saying something like, all of our problems, we send to our enemies. All of our difficulties, we send to the other tribe. And of course, that made intuitive sense to them. But then they became Christians. And the mystery of God unveiled in Jesus Christ became clear to them, particularly as they read Paul's letters and the rest of the Bible. And as they became Christians and read the Bible and read Paul's letters, they realized that the Bible teaches that we're not supposed to curse our enemies, we're supposed to love our enemies. Well, that cut against their intuitive approach to life. But then the other tribe that they used to curse, that other tribe became Christians as well. And therefore the two tribes were now in a deep way, one family their tribal identity remained, but underneath their tribal identity was a unity in Jesus Christ. And that created all kinds of problems. And one of the problems was, what were they going to do with their problems and their difficulties? Because they couldn't send them to the other team anymore because they were all part of the same family. What are they going to do? Well, they looked at the mystery of Jesus, the wisdom of God unveiled through the scriptures. And they found specifically in Paul's letter to the Galatians, that Jesus 
took all the curse of evil upon himself when he died upon the cross and a light came on and they figured, well, I guess that's where we should send our curses. We should send all of our problems, not to our enemies, but to the cross. And so they did. And what we have today is the result of that transforming work as the, as the wisdom of God was made clear to them. And then they enacted that wisdom in such a way that they could show that they were one family with people who they were former enemies with. And that blessing, that curse turned into a blessing has become a gift to the worldwide church, including Emmanuel Church in New York City. What I wanna show you is that God's wisdom is about reconciliation. And you can see that wisdom in action within the church, particularly when the church is transnational, multi-ethnic and anti-tribal. And, and we can only be that because we are united in a common reconciliation to God through Christ. Now, keep all this in mind and look at verse 10. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now let's put all the pieces together. That Kenyan blessing defies the intuitive wisdom of the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realm. That tribe's intuitive approach was to curse their enemies. And it made a lot of sense to them. And that's the wisdom of the rulers and the authorities. But it was an outward expression of an inward captivity to those rulers and authorities. And Jesus interrupted that intuition with a wisdom that they could never have discovered by themselves. But it's a wisdom that is precious and healing and reconciling. And it's precisely that sort of reconciling wisdom that we need today, do we not? You know one of the things that this means for us? Verse 10 tells us why racism is such a horrific heresy. Friends, a heresy is a falsification of God's wisdom. And racism, especially racism within the church, always falsifies God's commitment to reconciliation. It falsifies the message of Jesus's reconciliation by undermining the church's ability to display that reconciliation. It means that we can't obey or fulfill verse 10. And it seems to me that this is one of the key ways that the rulers and the authorities, demons and the devil, has tried to attack Christianity, particularly within our own nation. I'm sure the same attack happens in every nation, but we must be particularly vigilant against it. Because if the rulers and authorities can get us to talk a lot about reconciliation, but not exhibit it vividly within our communities, then it renders the church kind of toothless and impotent. And it, it sort of slaps a piece of tape over our mouths when we our mouths should be witnessing to the wisdom of God. And if all of that's true, then it means this, that the renewal of the church within our city and in our nation and around the world is going to be tied, it must be tied to a real lament and a real repentance and a real reconciliation so that we can be what Christ made us to be. The worldwide church can be a transnational, multi-ethnic, anti-tribal, reconciled church that defies the rulers and authorities with a wisdom that only Jesus unveils. Don't you want to be that? So God's wisdom is about reconciliation, and therefore it must be displayed within the church. 
But then lastly, God's wisdom also subverts power, at least the power of this world, and therefore it must embrace suffering. Do you notice how in this reading it begins and it ends with suffering? Verse 1, Paul is a prisoner. Verse 13, Paul says, uh, don't get discouraged by my suffering. It begins with suffering. It ends with suffering. And yet, despite that, there's not a hint, not a hint of complaint. In fact, in verse 13, Paul says, I want you to glory in my suffering. My suffering is your glory, he says to the Ephesians. What's going on there? Well, again, it all grows out of God's previously hidden but now unveiled wisdom. See, our intuitive wisdom uh, is to follow the rulers and the authorities. And that means that we will be all about power and protection and self-promotion. And if we're about power and protection and self-promotion, then that means we will avoid suffering by almost any means and we'll try to maximize control over our own life. Suffering will mean failure if we're following the wisdom of the rulers and the authorities, our intuitive approach to life. But God's wisdom turns that upside down. And you can see that most clearly when Jesus dies on the cross. Because in Jesus's execution, killing Jesus made all the sense in the world for the rulers and the authorities. So uh, Roman power, uh, Israelite protectionism, uh, political self-promotion, all of that was allied together to kill Jesus, get him out of the way. And when Jesus died, it looked like that wisdom, the wisdom of the rulers and the authorities, the our intuitive approach to wisdom, it looked, that looked vindicated. Jesus was out of the way. It might have been ugly, but at least it worked. But then Jesus rose from the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it messed everything up and set everything right. Because Jesus's resurrection means that the rulers and the authorities are not as powerful as they appear to be, that their wisdom is not as wise as it looks at first. Jesus's resurrection means that there is a path to power that instead of avoiding suffering is courageous and loving enough to walk right through suffering. Jesus's suffering was an advent of a new approach to wisdom and a new approach to real true power. Jesus' suffering undermined and triumphed over Roman power and Israelite protectionism and and, uh, political self-promotion, along with all the rest of the evil in this world. And the result of his suffering and his resurrection was beautiful. It meant that Jesus' enemies, people like Paul, could be reconciled to God. It meant that people like Paul, who had perpetrated evil, tribalism and violence, perpetrators of evil, could be reconciled with people they used to persecute. And that reconciled community could stand as a sign to the rulers and the authorities of this world saying vividly that God's wisdom is stronger, stronger than the rulers and the authorities, stronger than our intuitive approach to wisdom. Now, if that's true of Jesus, then it explains why Paul can call his suffering something to glory in. Friends, let's apply this to ourselves. If we follow intuitive wisdom, if we seek power and protection and self-promotion, then suffering will be the scariest thing in the world because suffering will seem like failure. But if Jesus's cross displays a new and stronger wisdom, then suffering no longer equals failure. When we suffer and we're following Jesus, then that can become one of the ways that God displays his counterintuitive wisdom to the world. That's what he was doing through Paul's suffering. That's what he does through the suffering of the church. 
And the only way to be people who are courageous enough to walk through suffering, uh, relying on the wisdom of Jesus, is if we're reconciled to Jesus ourselves. You see, the Apostle Paul knew that Jesus would use his sufferings to undermine the false wisdom of the rulers and authorities and display the mystery of Christ's reconciliation. See, the more Paul and we rest not on his own wisdom, not on our wisdom, but on Jesus's reconciliation. The more Paul rests, not on his own power, but on Jesus's wisdom. The more he rests on Jesus, the more he will be free from fear. He'll be full of hope and he'll be empowered to pursue real reconciliation. And Emmanuel, that's our path. If we live by our own intuition, we'll share in the confusion and the disarray of our day. We need a better wisdom than our own intuition. We need Christ's advent. We need Christ's intervention. We need Christ to unveil his mystery to us. And when we rely not on our own intuition, not on our own wisdom, but on Christ alone, then we'll be free and full of courage. We'll suffer and it will hurt and we will cry and we will weep, but it won't destroy us. And the Lord will use even our suffering to empower us to pursue reconciliation, even when it's costly. And the Lord will grow us to be a community that displays God's counterintuitive wisdom clearly. And we'll be able to see the unveiled beauty of Christ in increasing and breathtaking glory. So Emmanuel, Christ advented into this world to display the wisdom of God. And we need to give our life to seeing him as he presents himself in scripture. And then we give our life to reflecting him in community so that the world may look at us and see the unexpected but beautiful wisdom of God. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.